The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, so grateful that you are slow to anger, that you are rich in love. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together as your people and sing, and thank you that uh, you've given the gift of song to guide us, Lord, to direct our hearts upon what really matters, um, to help focus us. And so uh, we pray as we get time in your word, Holy Spirit, that your presence would just be evident, that you would reign and rule, Lord, over our thoughts, over our intentions, over our hearts, over our lives. And so um, we come um, and help us to submit, Lord, help us to have an attitude of uh, not our will, but your will be done. And so just reveal and cleanse us, God. Um, thank you for your word, and I pray that you, Jesus, would be honored. You would be made much. You would be glorified um, by our time together today. At the name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Awesome. It's good to be with you guys this morning. How you doing? All right. Man, that last song just uh, had me think, you know, it talked about uh, being rich in, uh, in love. And I, I think about how often, um, how often, People uh, really strive for, uh, for wealth. You know, they, they put so much time, so much effort upon being financially well off. You know, you think about the education that goes in, the time, you think about the effort, and, the, and uh, I, I mean, just how much energy and intentionality and effort go into trying to become financially lucrative, financially wealthy. And just the question for me is just, what do we think it means to be wealthy? What do we think it means to be rich? What is it that we're striving for in our life? You know, because we sing that song, it just reminds me of like, and the Lord says what, what really makes us wealthy is, is and, and lavish is receiving and, and, and his love and being recipients of it as well as showing his love. And do we think that? Do we believe that that's what it means to be wealthy? You know, that, that we will be content. I mean, because I've seen homes where they are, I mean, they financially secure, but they're not wealthy. They're not wealthy at all. Instead, they are poor, impoverished, and their lives declare it. And so let us today, as we set out to get into this text, let us acknowledge that what, it really, what, what wealth really is, is it is understanding the love of God and re- receiving that, and in turn showing that love to others. That is, that's the wealth that I want, right? At the end of my life, at the end of your life, hopefully you don't look back and you're like, well, I've got a couple million in the bank, I've made it in life. Because man, if that's your gauge, then you're going to be very empty. Life is going to become very vain. But if you look back in life and you're like, you know, man, I, I understood the love of God and I poured that love out into others. Your life will be well spent and you will have been a very wealthy person. And so as we, as we get into our text, I just, I look at our world and I see that. I see that our world is one that is desperate for love. I mean, Tinder, I mean, you look at all the different ways in which our culture is just yearning for, for, to be loved, but yet they don't know what love is. They don't know how to receive it and they don't know how to show it. And so let us today, as we dive into the scripture, let us say, God, we want to be learners. We want to be students. We want to come and ask that you would teach us um, what it means to receive love and what it means to show love. And so let's, uh, let's go into, uh, we're in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. 
for continuing on. We're a couple weeks away from finishing up First John, so it's been a, uh, a really good, uh, good book, good journey. John is cyclical. We've heard these themes over and over again, but once again, he puts them in different nuances. Um, and so we've talked about that God is light was kind of the first half of the book, and God is love is the second half. And he's talking about the implications of that. So last week we talked about... Um, Pastor Colin preached uh, verses 7 through 12, and we're going to kind of finish this thought about love uh, in verses 13 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and uh, read along with me. But he says in verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, does not love his, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is his commandment. Yeah, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. So the, the, the big idea that's going to guide us uh, in our time today is that God's love is generous and transformative. God's love is generous and transformative. That we must first receive his love before we are transformed by it. We must receive it uh, before we're transformed by it and then uh, show it. So the, the passage has really two big ideas or two points uh, that, that uh, help us to understand this idea. Uh, the first one is in verses 13 through 16. And uh, it's talking about evidence um, that we are in Christ. You know, what's the evidence? How do we know that we're in him? That we, basically it's assurance of salvation. And then the second one is uh, talking about um, how God's love is at work in us. That God's love is perfected in us. And here are ways that we know that God's love is at work in us. And so he gives us a couple ways that we can know that God's love is, is doing its job. That it's still active and moving in our lives. And so uh, first let's dive into uh, verses 13 through 16, uh, the evidence of our abiding. And so he, first, I just want to give you the outline up front. There's three things that he says that are evidences of our abiding. They're assurances of our salvation. The first one he says is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is, uh, is an assurance that we are in him, that he is in us. The second one he talks about is um, that we have, we confess Christ that there's a confession of him. And this confession, right, it's not just acknowledgement, it's a life transformation. And then the third thing he talks about is that we're actually convinced of God's love towards us. We're convinced that God actually loves us. And so I want to give that, we're going to go and and, uh, talk about those points a little bit more. So verse 13, he says, by this, 
By this we know that we abide in him. So he says this twice, by this, verse 13 and then in verse 17. And he is reasoning, right? That's a logical explanation by this. And then he's going to give a couple explanations of what he's meaning. And so, you know, he's, he's trying to reason with us. He's saying, listen, listen to me. Listen to these reasons that I'm giving you for why um, we have confidence that he is in us and that we are in him. And he says, we, we know that, Right? So he, John is over and over again, he's wanting us to have confidence and we are for us to know. Uh, and that's what he has written the book for, 1 John 5, 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he's not wanting his, God's people to wonder about, am I a Christian, am I not a Christian, where am I at along the spectrum? He's saying, I want you to have confidence that you are a Christian or that you aren't a Christian so that you might become a Christian. This gray area that says, well, I'm not really sure. Does nobody good? It hurts you. And so he says, I want you to have clarity that you are either in Christ or you're not in Christ. Because if you're not in Christ, then you know that you need Christ. And so he's, he's giving this to, so that we might have assurance. Um, and then he says that he wants us to have assurance about what? That we are abiding in him and that he is abiding in us. And so you're kind of like, well, this is strange, this mutual abiding, like I'm abiding in him and he's abiding in us. Um, and it's this, he talks about it multiple times that there, it's like a marriage. There is this mutual commitment to one another that we are together going to, going to be loyal and, and cling to one another, that we're gonna be with each other through thick and thin. And as I was um, as I was thinking about that, that idea of just sticking together, being loyal, um, one of the favorite movies popped into my head, uh, Lord of the Rings. So um, in Lord of the Rings, the whole idea is Frodo, uh, they're hobbits, very short, uh, and they are, you know, Frodo is given a ring that he has to go destroy. It's the ring that rules all the other rings. Um, and he's embarking on this quest that, you know, seems like it's going to cost him his life. It's going to take everything. It's going to get him outside of the shire, outside of his little comfort zone, you know. And so he is embarking on this massive quest. Uh, and he doesn't know exactly what he's going to do when he leaves the shire. But his, his best friend, Sam, you know, is eavesdropping in and bursts in and finds out, hey, this is going, he's like, I'm going along on the journey. And so you see, Sam is this epitome that I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin Right? He, he travels with him all the way until he gets to um, this, this place where the elves are, this kind of safety lodge. And, uh, and they have a secret meeting. And Sam isn't able to be separated from Frodo. Instead, he rolls out and he's like, you know, I'm going to be here too. And so you see all along the movie is that while everybody else leaves, you know, at the end of the, the last movie, you see that they all kind of leave. And, and Frodo is seeking to, to escape everybody else and take the ring on his own because he thinks he's able to escape detection easier on his own. And Sam refuses. He won't leave him. Instead, Sam can't, he can't swim. And so he starts walking out into the water, you know, after the boat that Frodo's in. And Frodo has to actually jump back in and save Sam because he's so loyal. He refuses, refuses to leave. Now, I don't care. You can leave everybody else, but you're not leaving me. I'm in this with you. And, and you see at the very end of the movie, Frodo can't go anymore. He's brought the ring to the edge of Mount Doom and he's trying to destroy it and he can't go any further. And Sam says, I can't, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And so he picks up Frodo on his back and he walks up to Mount Doom to destroy, to finish the quest. 
And that's what this idea is in this passage, is that there's this mutual abiding that, that Christ comes in and he is with us and he refuses to leave us. That he, he will be with us through thick and thin, that, that he will come in and, and that at times he will carry us. Even if he doesn't take our burden from us, he will come in and he will begin to carry us in the midst of our burden, in the midst of our trouble. And I, for me, that just is, it's so comforting to know that, I had, that Jesus is that kind of friend, that he is with us and dwelling in us. And so he, he goes on and he talks about it. And he says that uh, because the way that we know that, that we have that kind of relationship with him is because he's given us of his spirit. And so notice the first thing he says about the spirit is it's a gift. We don't deserve or we're not owed the spirit. That God gives us the spirit as a gift because he is generous. And the next thing it says, is that it's his spirit. And notice that the spirit, it means that the spirit's not an it. It's not a thing. The spirit is a person. And he has the same attributes of God as God does. The same attributes, the same attitude, the same purpose. And so God is giving us himself to be with us. And we see this in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. It says, in him, in the father, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him being Christ, were sealed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And this idea of being sealed, so this idea of that there was a letter that was placed in an envelope and there was a marked stamp, right? They, they sealed wax on it and they would mark that stamp and it was a seal that that letter was unopened, that it was, it was confirmed that it had not been touched until it got to the recipient. It got who it was intended to go to. And that's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is that for us, that he seals our salvation, that he is the guarantee that we are in God until we arrive safely at our home. And that that's when God will open it and it will be revealed, our inheritance being with him. In John 14, 16 through 17, and also verse 26, Jesus talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, isn't that so encouraging? Jesus is the first helper. The Holy Spirit is the second helper, that he comes and that we are not alone. Just as Sam was with Frodo and helped him in all of his tasks that he was called to, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he is the helper. He helps us to understand God's will. He helps us to obey God's will. He empowers us for the purposes that God calls us to. He's a helper to be with you forever. He never leaves us. He's not fickle. He's not like, well, if you're good, then I'll stay with you. But as soon as you start acting up, I'm out of here. He's with us through thick and thin. Even when we grieve him, he does not leave, but we've hardened our heart to him, to listening to his voice. He's with us forever, even the spirit of truth. And he'll tell us the truth, and that's sometimes why we grieve him. We don't like to hear the truth. And so we're like, Holy Spirit, that's great that you tell us those things, but sometimes I don't want to hear it. You know, we plug our ears and we grieve the Holy Spirit. But as soon as we unclog our ears and we say, I want to be open. I want to hear. He's right there to speak the truth to us. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world does not have this Holy Spirit. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. But the helper in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. I'm so grateful that we have the Holy Spirit. He is there to instruct us. He is there to teach us. That as you go to God in prayer and you ask, the Holy Spirit will guide you. He will teach you how to love. He'll guide you in where to go and how to operate your business. And all the Holy Spirit cares about the details of your life. 
And we bring those before him and he will give us guidance and wisdom. And so we see that the, the Holy Spirit is the first evidence that we are in God and that God is in us. And so do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Do you know, have you, have you had that confirmation that the Holy Spirit resides in you? Because for me, I know in my life there have been times where um, there are things that I would not want to do. It would not be in my mind or not in my, uh, in my plan, and the Holy Spirit speaks something. And for me, those are evidences the Holy Spirit is living inside of me. Because um, Trevor wouldn't want to do some of the things that the Holy Spirit leads me to do. I can be selfish, and sometimes I don't want to be generous, and he'll lead, you know, he leads in those things. And so the second uh, evidence that our assurance is that we confess, we testify to Jesus in verse 14 through 15, it says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Are there moments in your life that you know you'll never forget? I mean, I don't know about you. I, know, I remember where I was when 9-11 happened. Like, I remember, like, eighth grade, I was sitting in, like, you know, history class and found out. You know, there are moments in life that just mark you. You remember exactly where you were. You remember how everything kind of unfolded. Like I, I will probably forever, you know, remember what happened at my wedding, where I was, you know, standing there, seeing my ride, walk up through the aisle, or, you know, like Theo being born. Like there are just these moments, there are these defining moments that you just can't get out of your mind. Like they're just stuck there. And that you talk about those too, because those important moments in your life, sometimes they're really good, sometimes they're really bad. But those defining moments, they they stick with you and you remember them and you end up talking about them. You testify to them. And John is saying, listen, he, he's declaring that we, as the apostles, we saw Jesus. And that, is a, that was a defining moment. There were defining moments in, my, in his life that he's saying, I will never forget. I will never forget being at Jesus' baptism and seeing Jesus come up and the Holy Spirit descend and God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, I'm sure John's thinking, I'll never forget when I saw Jesus and he took the three of us up on the mountain and he was transfigured before us and shone in pure white and Moses and Elijah showed up on either side of him and we were standing in awe. Moment I'll never forget. Moment that marked my life. I'll never forget when I saw and I was standing there when Jesus was crucified and Jesus turned to John and said, look after my mother. And then I'll never forget three days later when he rose again from the dead and told us that the father had raised him up and that we were to go and we were to declare the reality of what we had seen and what we had experienced. And this is what John is saying. He's saying, I have seen it. And therefore, to, to see it, to experience it, is to testify of it. How can you experience something like that and not testify to the reality of it? And he's saying that while we have not seen Jesus physically, if you are in Christ, if you have become a Christian, you have experienced Jesus truly that you've had an experience of his presence in your life, that you've seen your brokenness and you have experienced his grace and his love. And to experience that is to testify of it. All of us, we speak what is important to us. Jesus talks about and he says that, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, if we've experienced Christ, that, that transforms our heart. And whatever is on our heart, it will come out of our mouth. I love that, that illustration, right? He, he pictures it like a, a pitcher. You know, whatever your heart is full of, it just, it just spills over and comes out of your mouth. 
And he says, so what is, you know, is your heart full of the reality of Christ? Are you, are you experiencing God? Are you meeting with him? And listen, all of us, we, we have hectic lives. There's busyness in all of us. And listen, God wants to meet you in the daily and the ordinary and the mundane and the tasks that you have to do throughout your day. Yeah, it's important that we have time set apart for God, that we actually have a time where we're, you know, putting down our phone, t- turning off the TV, and we're actually saying, God, I'm attentive to you. I want to turn and listen to you. But God wants to talk to us as we're driving to work. He wants to talk to us as we're sitting at lunch with friends. He wants to talk to us as we, you know, like as we go throughout our busy daily activities, he wants to meet us there. He wants, to experience, he wants us to experience him. You know, in, in our life group, we've been doing Celebration of Discipline. We've been talking about different disciplines that deepen us, that help us to experience God. And we were talking about prayer this last week and uh, we were talking about flash prayers, basically. And it's just as, as you see people to pray one or two words over them. You know, God's grace fall upon them. God's love restore them. You know, and just to pray those things. And man, God wants us to meet him in the daily ordinary things that we would experience him. Because as we experience him, we testify to him. We can't help it. And when I've experienced God in those rich ways, when I'm, I'm abiding in him in daylight, I can't help but talk about him to others. And he says that that is an evidence that we are in him, is that we're not, we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of Christ in our lives. But instead, we have confidence to, to share with others what God is, is doing in us. And he says also, he says, listen, everyone who confesses that Jesus, everyone, right? I think it's so encouraging that he doesn't say, listen, just some of you can come to Christ. Notice he says that, that anyone, whoever comes to Christ and confesses him can become a Christian. And, and that's so good news because he says, listen, it's not you have to be the right race. You have to be the right income. You have to have, uh, you have to be the right political party. He says, whoever would come to Christ he, he's waiting with arms open and he wants you to experience him. He wants you to know him. He's, he doesn't say, listen, as long as you clean up your past and then come to me, then I'll accept you. He says, come to me with your brokenness. Come to me with your past. Come to me with your problems, but come to me. Come to me. Whoever would come to him, he will not cast out. He is longing that you would come, that you would know him, that you would experience him that you might testify to him because that's how we're changed. That's how this world is changed. This world isn't gonna be changed because um, of political power, political force, or political policy. While however important those are and vital those are, the world is changed because individual Christians love Christ and care about those that don't because they are not ashamed of the gospel and they genuinely want to invite other people to experience the reality of Jesus. That's how this world begins to be transformed as you and I daily live out the mission of God in our simple everyday lives, he works through that to change this broken world. The, the third thing we see, uh, the third evidence that we see about how we can know that we are in him and the assurance of our salvation is that we are convinced of God's love for us. He says that we are convinced. In verse 16, he says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. One of the foundational doctrines of Christianity is that um, we are broken. 
we are, are sinful by nature as well as by choice, and that runs counter to everything that you hear in the world, right? Everything in the world is constantly about that you're great, that you need to affirm yourself, that, um, that there's really nothing wrong with you. It's just part of your personality. That there's, the, the world is constantly kind of speaking this truth that there is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as uh, there's nothing really that wrong with you. Um, we just need to embrace everything about you, right? That there's nothing that, that needs to be shed, that there's nothing that's wrong. And Christianity says, no, there, there's something that's deeply flawed within us. It's why we can know exactly what we ought to do and we don't do it. I mean, why is that? Why is it that we know that we should love others? We know we should be generous. We know that we should spend time with the Lord. We know all the right things to do, but yet we don't do them. And it's because of sin. It's because of this inward brokenness inside of us that says, I don't care. I, I want to be my own God. I want to rule my own life. God, you can take a back seat on this. And so Christianity says that. And, and when you come to experience Christ, when you actually come to see him, because that's for me is that before I knew that I had, I was like, yeah, yeah, there's some things in my life I don't like. But when I actually became, I, I started to experience him. I started to see his holiness. I started to see his perfection. Those things in my life became much more evident. I began to realize that when I didn't compare myself to everybody else, and I started actually comparing myself to God, that my brokenness and sin became stark. And I realized I have some really big issues. I have some really big problems in my life. But sometimes when that happens, when we actually start to see our sin and we take it seriously, we don't think that we can be loved. All right, we don't think that if anybody else saw what I'm really like, they wouldn't really accept me. They wouldn't really love me. And so what happens is, is we kind of wear a mask. And sometimes that transfers to God too. We wear this mask and we act as if, God, I, I've got things together. And we, we don't really, we're not being, we're not able to con- be convinced that God actually loves us because we don't think, well, if I get to here, then God will really love me. If, I, if I'm reading my Bible seven days a week, if I'm faithful in church, if I'm really plugged into a life group, if you know, I'm, I'm giving of all I have, then, man, God's going to really love me if I get to that. Or I'll just experience God's love more. And here's the thing. God loves you exactly right where you're at. And one of the marks of that you are in Christ is that you have been convinced that God loves you. And that has become a foundational reality in your life. It's not something that you're sitting there like, you know, picking petals off a flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not, right? You're not, you don't have that perspective in your life every time a circumstance comes up and it's hard. Every time something comes up in your life and it's difficult, you're not kind of picking the, the, the petals off the flower and be like, he loves me not. I'm waiting for another circumstance to say that he loves me, right? You have been convinced that God, God loves you, that he knows you. And in this, this one he says, he says, for we have come to know, right? In the Greek, that is, it's, it's a perfect tense. And what that means is, it means that it's a past action that's been completed, right? It happened in the past, and it was fulfilled. It was permanent. It happened, and it was done, but it has present implications. So that it happened in the past, but it has radically changed everything moving forward. And so what he's saying is, he's saying that when you believe the gospel, when you really understand that you're not more powerful than God, that your sin isn't bigger than God's grace. When you have a bigger view of God than you have of yourself, you become convinced that God's love and God's grace covers you. Because if he, if he would send his son to die for you, if he, he's already taken the worst that you have to give to him, there is nothing that is going to surprise him in your life. 
And so we, we come and, and we are convinced that God loves us. God loves you. And so are you convinced of that? Or is that something that you're still kind of picking the petals off the flower? God loves me, God loves me not. Because he wants you to have assurance that he knows you and he loves you fully and completely. There's a, a, a book, Francine Rivers wrote it. Uh, wrote, I read it years and years ago. It's called Redeeming Love. So if you're a Christian woman, most of, you know, it's like, you know, over a million copies sold. It's kind of the, you know, is stormed uh, uh, the, the women's ministry departments. And uh, it's, uh, it's basically a story uh, about Angel and um, Michael Jose. It's a, a remake on the story of Hosea. But Angel was sold into uh, prostitution as a child and young, and she grew this bitterness, this, this hatred towards men. And so um, Michael Jose is a, is a man that loves the Lord, and he was walking uh, in integrity, and he went into a city, and, and the Lord told him that this was the one that he was to marry in her prostitution and her selling herself uh, to, to attain money. And he continue, continually went back over and over and over and over again, even when she despised him, even when she tempted him and tried to get him to forsake his integrity. Over and over again, she pushed aside his attempts, but yet he was persistent in his love. He was steady. He was uh, intentional. And he came, and it took a, a pretty long period of time before she began to understand that she was loved. Because before she had hardened her heart, she had closed off because she knew her brokenness. She knew that she had messed up, but she wasn't, she wasn't gonna change and she didn't believe that anybody could know what had really happened to her and still love her. But he, he broke through that wall, slowly, consistently broke through that wall. But the thing that happened is when she really began to understand that she was loved, she became ashamed and she ran back. And sometimes that's what happens is that once we really understand our, that we are loved, Right? Sometimes we, we then are overwhelmed by that and we don't think that we're worthy of that. And so we, we run away. And, and the, man, the encouraging thing is that he continued to chase after her and continue to buy her back. And that's the story of the gospel for us is that God, God is so good and that he is out to convince you that his love is not going to change in your life. Because it's very easy for us to spout it out. Yeah, God loves me. But if I were to sit down with you one-on-one -on -one and really talk the details of your life, really get into the specifics. There'd be areas in your life where you'd open up and you would say, I don't really know. I struggle to believe that God loves me here. I struggle to, to accept that love and really be transformed by that love. And God is gracious because God's not gonna give up. He's going to continue to hunt you down in all those areas until you are convinced that his love is bigger than you, bigger than your sin, because he's stronger than you. And that is such an encouraging thing to our hearts. I hope that that encourages you to know that that's God's ambition in your life is to convince you that he loves you because when we are convinced that we're loved, we move forward in life in strength and in peace and in joy. And that's God's heart. He wants us to approach life like that rather than uncertainty and doubt and fear. He wants to convince us that he loves us deeply. And he says that we will abide, the, the, the end of that verse it says that, that we will abide in his love. And what does it mean to abide in love? Some people have taken that verse and, and flipped it and said, well, if you love anybody, then you of course must be of God. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying if you abide in God's love. And what does that abiding look like? What does that mean? It's easy to love people that you like, right? I mean, isn't that true? 
Like, I like that person. I, you know, we get along pretty well. It's easier. I mean, there are times where it's still hard, but the more you like somebody, the easier it is to love them. And so it's very clear that loving someone doesn't necessarily mean that we like them, right? That, that when we choose to love, it might change our ability to like them. But Jesus, he says that what loving someone looks like it, and what loving God looks like is that he says in John fifteen ten, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love is guided and informed by truth. Our culture, I see it so much. I was just engaged in a conversation with this where, where people associate love with mere emotion and sentimentality and just broad acceptance of everything. If I love someone, there are times where I'm going to stand against something in their life because I believe that it's truly damaging and harmful for them. And so to love is informed by God's truth. And so he's given us the Ten Commandments as a guide to help us to love. Sometimes we look at those as negative prohibitions, but here, let me, let me just talk about a couple of those. What does it mean to love other people? It means to help other people to worship God only. So when you think about the people in your life, are you encouraging them to serve and to worship God? Or are there ways where you're tempting them to put their allegiance and their loyalty in other things? What it means to love other people is it means to help them instead of looking and being discontent, it means to help them to find contentment in life. And so in your relationships, are you helping people become more content or are you breeding discontentment? He talks about that it looks like telling the truth. Are you helping, the way that you can love people is are you helping people to become, um, to have more integrity in their life where you're an advocate for truth in, in their lives? And so he, he says that these are practical ways. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they're not just negative, they're also positive and they're guides for us for what does it look like to practically love other people in their daily lives. And he says that there are times where it's not gonna feel like that because sometimes, you know, somebody's really discontent and you speaking up and being a voice to say, no, there's contentment, they might not like that. And there, listen, there's wisdom and time and appropriateness and all of that. Doesn't mean you need to be a jerk for Jesus and speak up every time. Sometimes you need to listen. But, genuinely caring for somebody and wanting what's best in their life at times isn't always easy. It's not always the, the road of, you know, the least friction. But we love people by abiding in his commandments, by believing that God knows what love looks like better than we do. So those are the, the three evidences or assurance of our salvation. He continues on and he talks about two ways in verses uh, 17 through 21 he talks about two ways that we can see that God's love is at work in us, that God's love is being perfected in us. The first one is that it casts out fear and it brings confidence towards God. Uh, and the second one is that it moves through us um, to work towards loving our brothers. So first, verse 17 through 18, he says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The first thing I think is, he, he says that love is still at work in us. And for me, that's encouraging to think about that, that God shows his love, but his love is still kind of ticking around in me like a clock. It's still kind of like, it's got these like mechanisms that's still working in me. And it's going to eventually go through me. And so God's love is at work in us. It doesn't, just, it doesn't just stop with us receiving it. Listen, if we have just received God's love and we don't show God's love, I don't know if we've truly received it. 
God's love is intended to come into our lives, that it would go through our lives into others. And so the first thing that we see is that it, it casts out fear. God's love, an understanding of God's love and God's love working in us, it casts out fear. Now, to cast out fear, there has to be something to fear. And so a lot of times we have turned God into a cosmic genie or a cosmic pushover. You know, like Robin Williams from Aladdin. Let me just rub the lamp and, you know, and he'll do exactly what I say. And, and you read the God of the Bible and he's immense. He's weighty. He's powerful. And there are times where Paul talks about, it, he says that there's both the kindness and there's the severity of God. Is that God is not someone to trifle with. He's not a pushover. God has true anger and true wrath that he hates sin, he despises it. And so if we are not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, listen, I urge you, do not make light of God. Do not presume upon God. Take him seriously because there is a day where he talks about, there is a day where all of us will stand and give an account. And God does not, his heart is that you would not stand on that day without Christ. Because Jesus says there's a reality there, there is a judgment coming, that there is hell, there is a separation from God for eternity. And so that is something that is fearful, that is terrifying. But he says that if you have believed the gospel, if you have received his love, then you no longer need fear God. That fear that has to do with punishment, that is afraid because of the, the, the recompense for our sin, it is cast out because God's grace has come in and we have seen that Christ willingly took our punishment for us. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, God does not want you to fear him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to embrace his grace so that he would be your father, that he would take you into his family. And so receive his love because his love does. His love casts out fear because we look at what fear has to do with, he says, fear has to do with punishment, right? I mean, when I did something wrong when I was young at times, if I was intentional with it, there's, there, every once in a while, my dad would, you know, say, go pick out a whip, you know? Like, at times, there, were, there, there was punishment. There was a recompense because of my wrongdoing. And it was because he loved me. He cared for me. And there was fear sometimes in that, right? I was not excited. You know, I mean, usually I wear 10, you know, 10 pairs of underwear and, uh, and go pick out the smallest wick and then I'd go pick out another one. But he says, listen, when we believe in Christ, we believe that, that, that Jesus has come and he's taken that punishment for us. He stepped in and, and he bore it. There's an illustration as I was, prep, as I was prepping for this. Um, and it was uh, set in like a 1920 schoolhouse. There was a, a class that had run out several teachers. I mean, they were just terrible, you know, and teachers wouldn't last long. They'd be in there a month, two months, you know, and there was a, a young college student that had just graduated and he came to the principal and he was like, you know, I, I really, I think I want to take this, this class. And the principal looked at him and was like, you better be sure, man, they're about to spit you out. You know, they're about to eat you up and spit you out. You know, you're going to last a year and, and be careful. You might want to, you know, like, you, you might want to learn something. They're going to they're gonna assault you. And so he, uh, you know, he took some moments of silence and thought about what he was committing to. And, uh, and after prayer, he was like, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to I wanna take this, this task on. So he, he came into the class on the first day and, uh, and he said, all right, you know, like we're going to do things a little differently. I want you guys to list what do you think the rules should be? 
And so he let the class come and, and vote on what the rules were. And so you had people say, well, I don't think that anybody should steal. I don't think that people should be late for class. And I don't think, you know, and they came up with these 10 rules for the classroom. And he said, everybody agree on these are the rules of the classroom? And everybody says, yes, we agree. He says, okay, now there has to be some kind of... Uh, What's going to happen if you guys break these rules? You know, so what is the what's the recompense if you guys choose not to follow this? And uh, and he says everybody has to agree because if there's nothing that holds you to the rules, then you're you know the rules mean nothing. And so the class said, well, all right, we think that they should get you know they should get swatted ten swats, you know. And the, the, the instructor's like, that's a little harsh, you know. Like, but if everybody thinks that that's what they're going to stick to, you know, and the whole class voted, the class said that that's what they were going to do. And they're like, all right, so we've, everybody, this is consensus. Classroom operated great for two or three days. Everybody, everybody is obeying. Everybody is operating well. Um, until midway through the third day, and uh, one of the kids, Big Tommy, you know, was, uh, was one of the larger children in the class, you know, and when the teacher walked in, was like, I'm going to eat him for, you know, I'm going to eat him for breakfast. And uh, Big Tommy walks in and says, somebody stole my lunch. Somebody stole my lunch. And, uh, and his irate, is furious, and the classroom kind of gets together, and they discover that it was little Timmy. And, uh, and, and little Timmy had stolen his lunch, and everybody had agreed that these were the rules, and this is what was going to have to happen. And so little Timmy comes up, and he's about to receive his spankings, and he says, you have to take off your coat. You know, he's not going to let him have, you know, 10 pairs under, so, you know, he doesn't feel anything, so you've got to take off your coat. And little Timmy says, I'll, I'll take it, but just don't, please don't let me take off my coat. And so... The teacher takes him aside, you know, what's going on? And, and little Timmy explained that, you know, my, my dad passed and my, my mom's so poor and we have no food. And so my, I only have one shirt and my shirt was, uh, was, was washed. And so I had to borrow my brother's coat and I had put that on. And he saw that the spine, you know, little Timmy was, was taking out and that he, he was bare. And so he decides, you know, rules are rules. We have to follow what everyone's agreed to. He takes out, and as he's about to swat little Timmy, Big Tommy steps up, and he says, there's nothing that says that I can't take his swats for him. And so he steps up there, and he swats Big Tommy five times, and then the thing breaks, and he turns around, and there's not a dry eye in the classroom. And it's the truth of what Christ has done for us is that there's no more fear, right? Little Timmy ran and embraced Big Tommy and there's a, a friendship there that would probably never end because he took his punishment for him even though he was the one that had offended him, even though he was the one that had stolen. And this is what Christ has done for us is that he has come and he has stepped in. God has to be just, he has to be faithful, but he sent his son so that he would also be gracious and merciful to us. And this is what casts out fear is because we've got Jesus and he has taken the full wrath of God on our behalf. He swallowed it, all of it. And this brings confidence. We approach God um, because we know that there's nothing against us any longer. Our punishment has been satisfied and he embraces us as our father. This brings confidence in our life. And this confidence, this, this love that has been given to us, it, it moves through us into other people. Verse 19 through 21, he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
God is the source of love. How often we foolishly think that we're going to be able to love our friends, love our spouse, love our children without meeting with God. The picture is that we are, we are desperately thirsty and that God is the well. And that each day he wants us to come to him with our bucket, with our cup, and fill it up. That he would use that and satisfy us, that it would overflow into other people's lives. But we have to keep remembering that he is the source. He is the wellspring. And that if we do not come to him, we are empty and we are dry. And that we have nothing to offer. He says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so do we have that conviction that, that I, I must, what is essential is that I must meet with him if I have any hope of loving other people in my life. And I, just I want to read some of these things. You know, this passage is literally brimming full of God's love. I mean, it is overflowing. The first thing is that God gives his spirit. He sends his son to be savior of the world. Having a son now, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know about that if I'd give my son up for somebody else. You know, I mean, and just seeing the father willing to send his son to die, the love that he has. He sent his son. He makes his home with us. He is patient to convince us of his love. He brings confidence towards God because he takes our, our judgment. He casts out fear in our lives. He is the source of love. He wants to pour his love into us and through us. He causes us to love other, other people. And he leads us to, to be genuine. He leads us to be a people of transparency as our identity is found not in us but in him. All of these things are just in this passage alone of how God loves us. And he, he says this though, that if you say that you love God and you don't love other people, that you're a liar. Now let me ask you, is it easier to love God or is it easier to love people? We think God, right? I mean, all of us would be like, listen, people are hard to love. They're broken, they lie, they, you know, they aren't trustworthy at times. There's all these ways in which people betray us. And so we would say, well, God's not like that. God's faithful, God's consistent. You know, we say all these things. But John says, he says, God's actually, he said, we'd say that God's actually harder because you, if you don't love people whom you can see, how are you supposed to love God whom you can't see? You can tangibly see and feel and, and look at and be with other people. And he says, if you're not able to love them, why do you think that you're loving God whom you can't see? I, I thought about this. I remember uh, my sister was going through a time of, uh, of being just rebellious. And, you know, I had my very uh, long share of that uh, as well. But I would talk to her and we would discuss it. And I would say, you know, I think it's just, it's ironic that we can say, well, I submit to God, but yet we don't submit to the authorities that God's placed in our life, right? Like, I, I submit to God, but yet I'm not going to honor my parents. Like, I'll submit to God, but I'm not going to honor my employer. I'm going to submit to God, but I won't ever honor any of the government that God's put above me. And so he says, listen, like, that's not true. If, you, if you're not able to, to love people or to honor the things that God's placed in your life, then why do you think that you're, you're honoring or loving God whom you can't see? And he says that it starts there with whom you can see and, and that that is a reflection of the love for God whom you don't see. So what does it mean to love our neighbors as ourself? All right, that's what he's basically talking about is that you have to love your brother. And as we mentioned earlier, it, it doesn't mean liking them, right? He says, love others as you love yourself. And listen, there are times where I don't even like myself. Right? I mean, there's times where you're like, look at what you've done. And you're like, I don't even like me right now. 
And so it's, it's surely not loving yourself or loving others, surely isn't liking them. But here's what it means. Even when you don't like yourself, you still want your best. You're still out for your good. You're still out, and, and listen, what you think is good might actually be wrong, but you're still out for what you think is gonna be best for you in your life. And he says, that's what it means to love other people. Is that the question isn't primarily, do I like them? Do I have warm, fuzzy, loving feelings towards them? The principal question is, what is best for them? And how can I set myself towards that aim in their life? How can I, how can I submit to the Holy Spirit, pray about this, and seek to do what is best for them? And trust that in light of that, God will bring feelings. God will bring emotion to follow it. We lead our heart rather than letting our heart lead us. Because God, listen, um, God can bring emotions. God can bring joy and passion and pleasure and love. But if we wait until we feel that to love, we are going to love very few people and not very frequently either. It's all going to be tied to how, whatever emotional state we're in. So I want to I close with this quote by, uh, by C.S. Lewis. He says, On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Amen. Nobody can always have devout feelings, and even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. If we are trying to do his will, we are obeying the commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. He will give us feelings of love if he pleases. We cannot create them for ourselves, and if we must, and we must not demand them as a right. But the great things to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and at whatever cost to him. And so as we close my hope is that that is what sits in your heart, is that God is relentless. His love is not fickle, and he is going to cure us. He's going to heal us. He's going to finish the work that he's begun. Pray with me. Father, so grateful um, that your love changes us, it transforms us, and helps us to love other people. Um, and thank you that you have taken our punishment for us, or that we, we deserved um, to suffer, to be separated from you, but instead you have borne it that we would be welcomed and accepted and loved. And so help us to be convinced of that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.